I'm Michelle Sims, and this is the Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to the Beauty and the Mess. This episode is about living an uncommon and extraordinary life. Hi, I'm Michelle Sims, your host. I'm just a regular person who, along with my family, have had our share of messes that we too have had to overcome. Along the way, I got curious as to how others get through their messes and even triumph over them. Maybe there's a better way, a faster way. Maybe we can accelerate our journeys by learning from someone else. That started my pursuit. I think we can all learn from each other through the sharing of experiences, lessons, and knowledge. So join me for episode 14 of The Beauty in the Mess called Living an Extraordinary Life with Terry Tucker. Terry is a motivational speaker, an author, international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. He has a business administration degree from the Citadel where he played NCAA Division I college basketball. And he also has a master's degree from Boston University. In his professional career, Terry has been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker, and for the past 10 years, a cancer warrior, which also resulted in the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He is the author of a book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life, and the developer of Sustainable Excellence Membership. Terry has also been featured in Authority, Thrive Global, and Human Capital Leadership Magazine. Maybe you can relate to this. Have you ever asked yourself if there's more to life than this? Have you ever wondered what your purpose in life is? And maybe even more importantly, have you ever thought, I can't handle much more? If you've pondered these questions or some of these questions, or even if you haven't, you should listen to the experiences that Terry has encountered and the knowledge and wisdom that he has to share. Terry is not only living an uncommon and extraordinary life, but he is doing it even though he has been battling cancer for the last 10 years, and still is, by the way. He has some advice and wisdom for all of us that I personally feel we should all try to pay attention to and learn from. You'll hear him say during the podcast that he doesn't have a big red S painted on his chest, but I think he secretly may. I have never met someone who is going through so much, enduring so much pain, and yet he still wants to help other people daily. What an aspirational human being he really is. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's conversation. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the Beauty in the Mess. I'm very honored to have you with us today. Well, Michelle, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I am too. I know you have quite extensive life experiences from what I've read about you. So would you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Is that a nice way of telling me that I'm old? No, not at all. (laughs) It's just you have a very varied life experience, quite extensive. It is. And I I didn't mean to make a joke about that. But yeah, I'll try to give you sort of the condensed version of it. I, I was born on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me. 
or for my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I was fortunate enough to play college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. When I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to find a job. And I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize just how little I knew about business. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job out of college in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their marketing department. Oh, wow. That was the good news. Unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother who were dying of different forms of cancer. In terms of corporate-wise, started out at Wendy's, then I spent a few years in hospital administration, and then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of that is I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After that, I started my own school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball when we lived in Texas, became an author in 2020, but for the last 10 years have been battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for almost 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Wow. That's very impressive credentials. I have to say that. Thank you. Well, I always look at that and think, well, one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up kind of thing. You know, I'm surprised you went from the business world into police and you said a SWAT team. What was behind that shift? Was it just the need for excitement or wanting to help people or what caused that shift? Yeah, there is a backstory. And if you understand the backstory, my resume makes a little bit more sense. The backstory was my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during the height of prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression, the late 1920s, early 30s. And when the gangs, Al Capone and those guys were sort of Uh, shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle, taking a homicide suspect back to the lockup. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told him. My dad was an infant when this happened, of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. I mean, and let's face it, trauma medicine in 1933 was a whole lot different than trauma medicine in 2022. So when I expressed an interest in sort of following in my grandfather's footsteps, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not the life I felt I was supposed to live. So I had a choice when I graduated from college. I could have said, "Mm, sorry, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go off and blaze my own trail. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and go into business. And that's exactly what I did. And I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. And so 
it was just a matter of my mom and dad gave my brothers and I a great life. I wasn't about to abandon my mom and my dad and, and, and our family at a time when they needed me when my dad was sick. Right. So there, there was no doubt I was going to do what my dad wanted me to do. But I just had that yearning, that sort of tug that I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And eventually I got there. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer. I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than everybody else did. <laughs> but it was just my passion and something that I felt I needed to do. And fortunately, I got to do it. That's pretty awesome, really, that you waited. Because obviously, he was concerned about your welfare and your safety. Sure. I'm sure. I'm sure that was the biggest part. Of it. Yeah, it wasn't. He wasn't trying to be mean. It was just, look, I want something that's better for you than that kind of job. And I'm like, dad, that's what I want to do. I think that's what I was born to do. I don't look at it as something that's below me or beneath me. We need good police officers. So why won't you let me do that? So we had some interesting discussions around that. I'm sure. So in your own terms, you've obviously lived an uncommon and extraordinary life, but you believe that's possible for all of us. So how do we achieve that in your experiences? I do believe that. I do believe we're all born to live uncommon and extraordinary lives. And that has nothing to do with what kind of job we have or how much money we make or what kind of house we live in or what kind of car we drive. We all have unique gifts and talents. We are not all the same, but we also have the ability to be the best person that we're capable of becoming. And when people ask me, how do you do that? I always tell them, I... I I would recommend that you search for it with your heart. And I guess one of the things I need to sort of back up and say is a lot of times we think of our purpose or our passion or our why or whatever you want to call it, that it has to be our job, our profession, our occupation. It doesn't. I mean, it would be great if it could be, but your job could be over here and that's what you do to pay the bills. But your passion or your uncommon and extraordinary life is over here. And maybe it's being a podcast host, maybe it's writing, maybe it's painting, maybe it's volunteering, whatever it is. I don't know what it is for each person, but I think because we all have these unique gifts and talents, there are things that we gravitate towards that are, hey, you know, I'm really interested in that. Well, this doesn't interest me at all. But a lot of times we get stuck in those things where I'm just not motivated. I don't like what I'm doing and things like that. And I always tell people, keep searching with an open heart and you will find it. You may not find it in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s. I always tell the story that Colonel Sanders, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I don't know if that was his purpose in life. I'm going to assume it was. He didn't start that franchise until he had retired, until he was in his 60s. And I've seen a lot of people that have quit, that have given up, that have just packed in and said, eh, you know what, I'm comfortable where I am. I'm just going to stay here. If you're comfortable, you're not growing. Right. And I go back to the Shawshank Redemption movie quote of get busy living or get busy dying. I want to be in the get busy living category. You know, So I try to do those uncomfortable things every day. And, and, and I always recommended that to people. Do something every day that scares you, that makes you nervous, that is potentially embarrassing. Because if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and you and I were talking before we recorded about all the health problems that your family has had, we all experience big hits in our life. But if you do those uncomfortable things every day, 
you'll be so much more resilient to handle those big things when they present themselves. I agree with that. And speaking of purpose in life, do you have the mindset that we all just have one purpose or it changes maybe over our lifetime or we have multiple purposes? What's your view on that? I I do. I believe we have multiple purposes. When I was young, I, I really felt my purpose was to play basketball. And I can tell you, I can go into some of the things that I learned playing basketball. So that was when I was young. And then I had this drive, this desire to be in law enforcement in my my 20s and 30s and 40s. And now that I'm probably coming towards the end of my life, I feel my purpose now has changed again to putting as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much love back into the world as I can with whatever time I have. So yeah, I absolutely believe that your purpose can change over time. For some people, it doesn't. I mean, for some people, they're a doctor for their whole life or they're a lawyer for their whole life or whatever that ends up being. There are some people, I'm not going to say a lot of people, there are some people that know immediately, I'm going to do that. I'm really interested in this field. I'm going to be in law enforcement. I'm going to be in the military. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a writer, whatever it ends up being. But I think for the vast majority of us, We don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know what our purpose or our passion is. And I always tell this, especially to young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Very true. I hadn't really thought of that, but it's very true. But I think even in older phases of life, you still have an opportunity to try to jump in and do things. Sure. Yeah, it's never too late. Absolutely. If you want to tell us, I know you had a major shift in your life and that kind of redirected your life, it seems like. Would you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. You're talking about my cancer experience? Yeah. That started back in 2012. So it's been a little over 10 years now. I had a kind of simple, kind of goofy thing that I had a callus break open on the bottom of my left foot, right below my third toe. And at the time I was coaching high school basketball. So initially I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a couple of weeks of it not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you've got a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma. And most people think of melanoma as too much exposure to the sun. It affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. He said, you have a rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because your cancer is so incredibly rare, He recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And so I did. I had the tumor cut out on the bottom of my foot. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And after I healed, my oncologist put me on a weekly injection 
of the drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. Because back then, melanoma was kind of a death sentence. They really didn't have any treatments for it. So we're going to put you on this drug in the hopes that we can kick the can down the road and buy you some more time. The side effects of the interferon for me were that I got severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. That's horrible. And as I said, that was not a cure. That was, we're just trying to buy you more time. I was on the interferon for five years, four years, seven months, actually, before I ended up in the intensive care unit with a body temperature of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. That was the toxicity to the interferon. So I had to stop it. And almost immediately, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. That necessitated in 2018, the amputation of my left foot. The cancer worked its way up my leg and my shin. 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle area at the bottom of what was left of my leg grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for those tumors. And I know that sounds like a very dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been, but I've learned a lot of things. And a couple of the things I've learned is I really don't think you know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity. And the second thing I learned is that cancer has made me a better human being. How so? I mean, how do you think it's made you better? It's made me better by one, appreciating the things that I have, and two, making me realize that we all deal with pain and difficulty in our own ways. But I've seen a lot of people that have gone down a road and it doesn't necessarily have to be with the disease. They try to start a business or start a different career or whatever it ends up being. And something blocks them. An impediment gets in their way and they quit. They fold. And I've found that I think we all have a breaking point. I think we all have a point where I just can't do this anymore. But that breaking point, at least in my experience, is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. I'll give you a story, and this starts out kind of weird, so hang out with me. There was a professor back in the 1950s at Johns Hopkins University on the East Coast who did a very simple experiment. He, He did an experiment with rats, and he took rats, and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head, and he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water before it would sink and drown, and the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water on average for 60 hours. Wow. So think about that. 15 minutes. I'm not just going to fail. I'm going to die. It's over for me. Second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe, maybe not this week, maybe not next month, maybe not even next year, but at some point in time, 
our life is going to get better. And the second thing is just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we've ever given them credit for. I've seen people when I was a policeman shot five, six, seven times that are up walking around talking and stuff like that. So our bodies can handle a tremendous amount of damage. Now, granted, pain comes with all that, but that pain is something that I also believe we can handle. And people just quit because, ah, I'm tired, I hurt, I I don't wanna do this anymore, so I'm just gonna quit. And I've always found that, no, I'm not anywhere near ready to quit. And for me, it's been 10 years dealing with this cancer journey. Which is amazing. Yeah. And that, that's something I wanted to ask you, because in this journey, especially through the cancer journey, it seems like you've become a master of mindset in a way. So how do you, when you're feeling that chronic pain, it's got to be, I don't want to say depressing, but I, I know from my own family's experiences, you can get really down. And I know hope is huge, just like you said, but how do you master that mindset to keep motivating yourself or pushing yourself forward when things look bleak or things do become very hard? Yeah, I think this goes back to what I learned as being part of a team. I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played all the way up till I graduated from college when I was 21. And I think what team sports teaches us, it doesn't have to be sports, but for me, it was. I mean, any kind of a team, a family, a business, whatever you're in where you've got a group of people, I think what team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You realize that on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. I I mentioned I'm being treated for these tumors that I have in my lungs, and I am on a clinical trial drug that more than likely is not going to save my life, but very well may save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, that I won't even meet based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood work and scans and things like that. So for me, that's being part of something that's bigger than yourself. So whenever I get into those dark places, and I do, you're looking at me right now, there's no S on my chest. I do not wear a cape and fly around with magical power. So I have those days. I have those days when I cry. I have those days when I get down. I have those days when I feel sorry for myself. And when I do, you look at when you're feeling sorry for yourself, you're looking inwards. It's all about me. I feel bad. I'm down. I'm depressed. I'm in pain. I'm tired. Yeah, been there. I'm there every three weeks when I get my treatment. But what I found is that's looking internally. A way to get rid of that is to look externally. Who's out there who I can call? Who's out there who I can just say, hey, how's it going? Who's out there? Hey, you want to go have a cup of coffee? Instead of focusing on yourself, try to focus on other people, other people that are having a bad day or dealing with their diseases. You mentioned your heart problem, your husband's cancer and things like that. I'm sure there are plenty of people around you that you can help based on the experiences that you've had. So whenever I get into those dark places, and I do, I try not to look internally. I try to find somebody that I can help. And now all of a sudden, wait a minute, my focus is not on me it's on somebody else and trying to make their life a little bit better. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I was going to say one of the differences with you is that you've learned how to pull yourself back out of those feelings. And that seems to be how you've done it is by turning your focus outward. Who else can you help? And then it takes a focus off of your problem temporarily. It does. 
That sounds like a huge benefit. So I know you've also have four truths that you adhere to. You want to explain those? Sure. So the four truths, I, I have them right here on a post-it note that I have in my office and I, I see them multiple times during the day. So they constantly get reinforced in my mind. And they're all just one sentence and I'll read them to you. And if you want to go into all of them or some of them, we can do that. The first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more determined individual. The third one I look at is more of a legacy truth, something that I think it's important for all of us to think about the end game of our lives. And the third one is this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one is, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I use those as kind of a bedrock of my soul. I also have a very deep faith in God, but I use those when I'm trying to determine, do I want to start this therapy, start this treatment, get involved with this project and things like that? Are these things that are going to help me or are these things that I should say no to? And I don't think we do a good enough job. We all want to be pleasers. We all want to help people and stuff like that. But there are times when you have to say no. I can't do that. That's not in my best interest or not in my family's best interest. Or I don't think God wants me to do that right now. I'm going to stay where I am. So no is a word that kind of gets a bad rap. We don't like to say no to people, but I'm sure you would probably agree with me with while your family's been through. There are times you have to say, no, we can't do that. No, we can't go to that. Or no, we can't be involved in that. My husband needs to rest or I need to rest. Or, this needs to happen and that. So those are the four truths that I try to live my life by. I think they're awesome. And you're right. Saying no is a very hard thing. It seems like it shouldn't be for all the reasons you stated, but it is. It is. When you're looking at someone, it's hard to say, no, I can't help or no, I can't do that. Because we do want to please. We do want to help people. And we want to make them happy. We do. When you talk about embracing the pain and the difficulty to make your mind more determined, you also talk about hardening the mind. What does that mean exactly? How do you harden your mind? So our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the status quo, the way things are right now, it's comfortable, it's familiar, don't mess with it, it'll leave it alone. The problem with that is the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is if we step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. I'm sure all the girls that I coached when I was in high school will tell you, yeah, coach was always telling us, you need to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it goes back to doing that one thing every day that makes you uncomfortable, that scares you, that makes you nervous, that's potentially embarrassing. And if you do that, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be something little like, I can't stand going to the dentist. But the other day I picked up the phone, made the appointment to, to go to the dentist. And they're like, well, that's no big deal. You're right. It's not a big deal, but it still made me a little uncomfortable. If you do those little uncomfortable things every day, you get to the point where you can handle the big things in life. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be cancer pain or heart disease. It doesn't have to be any kind of an illness. It could be as simple as break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you're going on vacation and the airline cancels or delays your flight, or somebody at the office gets the promotion that you deserve. 
Pain is inevitable in our lives. Suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you take it and use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? As I mentioned, I, I get into those places. Yes, I feel sorry for myself. I want people to feel sorry for me. But I look at pain as instead of running from it, what if we took it? What if we just flipped it inside and burned it as fuel or used it as energy to make us stronger? I'm sure people are sitting there thinking, well, yeah, Terry, you could do that, but I could never do that. I'm telling you right now, I am the biggest wimp in the world. If I can do this, I promise you, anybody who's listening to us, you can do this as well. I wouldn't say you're the biggest wimp in the world. <laughs> Trust me, when I was a little kid, when I knew my mother was taking me to the pediatrician to get a vaccine or whatever... I would wait till she got out of the car and then I'd lock all the doors from the inside. She would literally have to go get the pediatrician and his nurse and we would play this cat and mouse game. That's how afraid I was of getting a simple injection when I was a kid. And I've never outgrown that. I don't like to get surgery. I mean, not that anybody does, but some people to get an injection and it's no big deal. I am still scared to death of that. And so the way I look at it is, I'm scared of it, so I've got to do it. The more pain you're going to give me, the more I'm going to use that to make me stronger. Give it to me again. Give it to me again. When I started on this trial drug, there were a lot of times when I was at the hospital where I was getting either stuck with a needle for blood draws or for injections 20, 30 times in a 10-hour period. Now you're like, oh, yeah, it's a needle. It's not a big deal. But when you're scared of them? It's a big deal to me. <laughs> I can agree it with you on that. <laughs> and the dentist too. I'm right with you on all of these. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so how do people prevent themselves from slipping into denial versus expanding your comfort zone? A lot of people just go into denial where they just pretend it's not even happening. How do they avoid that? I, I don't know. Okay. Yes, I've seen a lot of people that have had a disease and they basically turn their life over to a doctor. And it's like, you make all the decisions for me. I'm not wired that way. I want my life to be based on the decisions that I made, not the ones that I didn't make or the ones that somebody made for me. So I am very active in my own healthcare. I read things. I'm at a, a university setting, the University of Colorado Hospitals. So I have access to an oncology pharmacist. And, and I'll give you an example. I read an article about uh, DHA, which is a fatty fish oil that's good for your heart. But I also read an article, this article that said that these doctors in Portugal were using DHA and they found that it acts like a Trojan horse in cancer cells where the cells would pick it up and it would kill the cells. So I went to my oncology pharmacist and I said, hey, I want to start taking DHA. What do you think? And she's great. She's like, let me go research it. I'll get back to you. And she got back to me and she said, Terry, no, we don't want you to take it because one of the side effects I had of the interferon injections were that I got a blood clot in my lungs. So I'm on blood thinners now. And she said, DHA could cause you to bleed more because you're on the blood thinner. So we don't want you to take it. And so I didn't take it, but at least that was something I could understand. Yes, this does this for the cancer, but we don't want you to take it because you have this medical condition and it could harm you more than it could help you. That's the kind of person that I am. I, I want to be involved. I want to ask questions. Why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? And my oncologist is not a guy that looks at the future. 
if I asked him like, well, hey, when this stops working, what's next? He won't answer that question because he's like, I don't know if this stops working next week, we would do this. If it stops working in five years, we would probably do something else. So he said, I'm not going to speculate on some unknown that I don't want to get your hopes up or just the opposite of, of get you down because there's nothing we can do when I don't know when that's going to happen. So he's very much, we deal with the present. We deal with the way things are right now and what tools we have in our toolbox. So I don't know how to answer your question. You're going to quickly realize that you have whatever disease you have. You may not like it. Right. This really isn't swearing, but you and I talked about this before. This sucks. It sucks for me. Right. But you have to embrace the suck, for lack of a better word. You have to take this ugliness and you have to use it for your benefit. And walking away from it or saying, oh, this isn't me or that's never going to happen or that's not happening to me isn't going to do you any good. You need to find a way to wrap your mind around it. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be easy. I think I went through all the stages that we would associate with grief when I found out I had cancer. You know, first it was denial. It's like, wait a minute, I, I can't possibly have cancer. I've done everything right in my life. And then it was, I got mad. It's like, what? Yeah, no, I, I can't possibly have cancer. And then I started to bargain with God. When I got cancer, our daughter was in high school. I was like, look, just let me live long enough to see her graduate and then you can do whatever you want. And then I kind of got a little depressed. And then I just got to a point where I don't like the cards that I've been dealt, but I'm going to have to play these cards to the best of my ability. I don't know if I've got 10 weeks to live or 10 years to live, but I'm going to play these cards to the best of my ability. And that took some time to wrap my head around that. So for the people that are out there that are listening to us that are like, yeah, I got cancer, but I don't really want... For me, I would just tell you, get involved, get in there, figure out what's going on, figure out what works for you. You know your body better than any doctor does. And I've had doctors say to people, well, this doesn't look good. You got six months to live. Your doctor doesn't know your heart. Your doctor doesn't know your resolve. Your doctor doesn't know that your daughter's getting married next year. And by God, you're going to be there for that event. So it's amazing what you can do when you set your mind to it. But don't take a doctor on face value and say, well, that doctor told me I'm going to be dead in six months. I'm going to be dead in six months. No, that doctor doesn't know you and your result. I think you're 100% right on that. And to your point, I think you're the best advocate you're ever going to have. And the same goes for your child. No one's going to advocate for you or your child the way you would. And I hope people, instead of going into denial, will take hold of that. And like you're doing, make the most of it you possibly can and get the best treatment you possibly can and know all your options. I think that's huge, especially when you're facing a, an illness. Right. I did want to touch on the faith aspect for a minute, if you don't mind, if you could give some insight on what your path has been with your faith. Sure. I've always had a very strong faith. I, I had three knee surgeries when I was in high school. First one when I was about 15 years old. And this was before arthroscopic surgery was available. So I, I have the large zipper scar on the outside of my knee. I was not in a Catholic hospital, but I remember one night I, I had a high fever. I had an infection in the wound. I was in a lot of pain. So I was getting a lot of medication and I started to hallucinate. I started to see things and it scared me. It was probably two o'clock in the morning. I called home and I woke my mother and my father up. My mom was like, I put a rosary, I, I'm Catholic, I put a rosary in the bedside table, open the drawer and start saying the rosary. 
And that gave me a tremendous amount of relief of just things are going to be okay. This is something tangible that I can hang on to. I, I remember hearing a story one time about a woman whose daughter was in a Catholic hospital and the daughter was continuing to deteriorate. And the mother went outside and there was a statue of the Blessed Mother of Mary out there. And the mother picked up rocks and started throwing rocks at the statue. And security came out and was going to stop her. And one of the sisters, one of the nuns came out and looked at the security guys and said, leave her alone. She's praying. You know, so that was her way of, hey, God, things aren't going right. We don't need to be thinking like we need to be reverent to God all the time. I think God gets the fact that we're struggling, we're scared, we're anxious, we're nervous, whether it's us or a family member, and gets that. And I've always felt that people ask me when I got cancer, and we're great about doing this, especially here in the United States, we, we've got to blame somebody. We start down a road towards a goal, and we don't obtain that goal. And then we don't just say, okay, I blow it. We say, well, I got to blame somebody. I got to blame my parents or my boss or my station in life, whatever that is. So when I got cancer, people were like, well, who do you blame? What? What, what do you mean? Who do I blame? Well, you've got to blame somebody because you got cancer. Oh, wow. I don't blame anybody. And, they'll, and then they find out I have a faith life and they're like, well, you must blame God. And I sort of joke. I'm like, no, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer day. I don't believe that at all. I don't either. But I do believe he's given me the strength to get through this. Because when I was on that five-year cycle of interferon, there were several times that, I, I mean, we've all had the flu. I mean, imagine having the flu every week for five years. I can't imagine that, yeah. I couldn't either. When my doctor said, we want to put you on this, these are going to be the side effects. I looked at her like, you're nuts. That's not rational. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You can't ask somebody to have the flu every week for five years. And I still remember her response. She's like, do the best you can. Wow. And, and I was like, do the best I can. But there were days that I literally prayed to die. I was so sick of being sick that I was just like, God, I, I'm done. Take me out of this. Well, God didn't take me out, but God gave me the strength to go through it. And I have a very bad reaction on the first day of my treatment now. And a lot of times that reaction occurs at home where I don't have medication to help. And a couple of cycles ago, I literally was in tears. I was in so much pain. I was throwing up. I just felt abandoned. I felt like God had abandoned me. And I'm like, are you serious? I need your help right now. I'm asking for your help. And you're not giving it to me. But then I got through it. And I'm like, well, maybe he did. You know, it's kind of the old footprints in the sand. I, I, I'll, I'll kind of mess this up a little bit, but there's two sets of footprints in the sand. And then the person looks back and there's only one set of footprints. And the net of the story is God saying, well, there's only one set because at that point I was carrying you. I was taking care of your life. Right. So yes, I struggle with my faith all the time. Are you there, God? What do you want me to do? When I had the tumors in my lungs and I had my leg amputated, my oncologist showed me my CAT scan from back then a couple months ago. And I don't have any medical background, but I had fluid all around the pleural spaces, the outside of my lungs. I had these big tumors in my lungs. And I, I looked at my oncologist and I was like, how was I alive? And he shook his head and smiled. And he's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you were alive in that period of time, which said to me that God's not done with me and that when I die, how I die, where I die, 
way above my pay grade. So I don't mean to be joking about it, but I do joke about it sometimes. You have to, I think. You do. I mean, if you don't laugh, you cry. (laughs) You absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) I also think of the story, and I'll butcher it, I'm sure, but where the guy, his house is at risk of being flooded and the floods come and he ends up climbing on the roof and he's like, God, help me, God, help me. And a helicopter comes and he says, no, I'm waiting on God. And he keeps praying. And then a boat comes by. No, I'm waiting on God. Long story short, he drowns and he goes to heaven. He said, God, where were you? I was waiting on you and you never showed up for me. And he said, I sent a helicopter. I sent a boat. So I always try to remember that as well. That's a great story. Yeah. Many times he's helping us and we don't even realize that the help is being offered to us. Yeah. And like you say, when you're tired, when you hurt, when you're, you're kind of on your last nerve, it's hard. It's hard in a lot of ways. To, it's hard to keep going. It's hard to keep your faith. It's the old mustard seed thing in the Bible. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could uproot this tree and plant it in the ocean and it would do it. I like to think I have a strong faith, but a lot of times reminded that I don't. And I need to keep asking. I need to keep praying. And, and I do. And I, I, I spend probably an hour every day in, in prayer. And I'll be honest with you, certainly for myself, but for a lot of the other people that I've gone through cancer with, when I started this clinical trial, I started it with two other people who passed away last year from their disease. So I'm kind of the last man standing and it's like, okay, it wasn't my time. It it was their time to go. So you just never know. You just have to be ready when it is your time. Right. And I think I'm like you anyway, that I don't believe God puts illness on anybody. No, I believe he allows it to happen for whatever reason but I don't think he ever makes anyone ill. But sometimes you question why me or why is he not helping me? Or like you said, maybe he is helping. We can't see it because we're so caught in our own little world at that moment. We are. And you made a good point. Why me? The answer to that question is why not me? Exactly. Why not me? Why can't I be the light? Why can't my life be the testimony God's love. I shouldn't be here. I had a fever 108 degrees. That's usually not compatible with being alive. I had these big tumors in my lungs. That's astounding. But I'm still here. That's not me. I'm not doing anything to make that happen. Maybe that's God. Maybe my body, maybe my life is the testimony that God wants other people to see. And I, I don't know that, but I just try to get up every day and do the best I can. Sure seems that way. I mean, I know you call yourself a motivational person, right? I try. (laughs) But to me, you're beyond that. You're inspiring to see everything that you're going through and you still want to help other people. You want to make life better for other people. It's just amazing to me. It really is. Well, thank you. I, I heard somebody once say there are four types of people in the world. There are the unmotivated, which are the vast majority of people. There are the people who motivate. And, and that's kind of a sort of a low brow thing, sort of a carrot and a stick. If you do this, then I will give you that. Or if you do this, you will get that. And then there are the inspirational people and inspiration coming the word from in spirit. So your spirit basically is inspiring people to do things. And then there are the aspirational people where their life is something that people want to aspire to be like. That's where I'm trying to go. I'm trying to get to that aspirational part where my life is making a difference 
in other people's lives and other people's mindset and things like that. And I don't have all the answers. And, and I'm really careful to go on podcasts and I, I sound like you sound strong, you sound great. If you look at my lower body, it is nothing but scars, but I've earned every one of those scars. So in a lot of ways, they're kind of like trophies. They're kind of like something that, yes, Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, used to have a quote. He said, if you're going through hell, keep going. And I think a lot of us, certainly you and your family and me and my family, we've gone through hell. We're going through hell. But with God's grace, with God's love, with God's compassion, we're continuing to be aspirational people that we are aspiring other people to be like. So do you feel like it helps you personally to tell your story? No? Not anymore. I've told it so many times. My wife will listen to one of these podcasts. She's like, you need to slow down. You know your story so well that you just kind of rattle it off. And it's like, slow down. Give people a chance to kind of catch up with you and go with it. It doesn't really do anything for me anymore. But I don't know who it does something for. I'll give you an example. I had a nurse a young lady, about 25 years old, who was in training on the unit where I work. She was already a nurse, but or not where I work, where I get my treatment. And it's an infusion center. And so she was in training. And a couple months ago, she was taking care of me by herself. And she said, Tara, I've got a story I want to tell you, but I'm a little uncomfortable telling you. And I didn't know how to respond to that. I'm like, well, sounds like it might be an interesting story. I hope you get the courage to tell me. I'd like to hear it. So she came back and she was in and out, came back about two hours later. She said, all right, here's the story. She said, when I first met you, I was going to get out of nursing. I had a very good friend of mine that had just died. I was in a really dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to quit nursing and I was going to go to work for Amazon. And she said, and then I met you and I see what you go through. I see how bad you hurt when you're here. And I read your story and how long you've been doing this. And you just keep coming back and taking all this. She said, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Wow. Now, if she would have never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had had an impact on her. And I always ask people, who's out there that you have no idea who they are that would give anything just to walk in your shoes for 24 hours? I don't care how bad your life is. Somebody sees you. Somebody's looking at you and saying, gee, I, I want to be like Terry. I want to be like Michelle. I want to be like Bob. I want to be like Tom. Whatever it is, I want to be like that person. We have no idea who those individuals are. We have no idea who we're influencing with the way we live our lives. There was a basketball coach at UCLA when I was growing up who had a, a saying that went like this, a careful person I want to be, a little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. And I always kind of remember that. I have a responsibility to people that I don't even know to live the best life that I possibly can and try to be an aspirational individual that they would be well served to follow in my footsteps. Like I said, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything I need to know. I'm still learning. But by telling my story, I often wonder who's out there that's hearing it that needed to hear that story today. And I think you are aspirational, really. I didn't have the words for it before, but I think... No, no, no. I, I understand. <laughs> you definitely are. To see everything you've gone through, everything you're still going through, and the way you present yourself, 
and I know they're, I'm not trying to make light of, I know it's difficult. I know it's emotionally hard. I know it's physically hard. I can only imagine the pain you must go through emotional and physical, but you're still going and you're still helping people and you're still trying to make the most of your own life. I think that is aspirational. I truly do. A lot of us are dealing with far less and struggling even as much, if not more. And I'm not taking away from your struggle. I'm just saying that you've mastered the mindset where a lot of us haven't mastered the mindset yet. Yeah, it's important. Like I said, I grew up in Chicago and I had a guy that I played basketball with when I was in high school, went to Indiana University and played for Bobby Knight, one of the best college coaches of all time. And I'm in Indiana. Yeah, there you go. And we used to see each other in the summer when we would come home from school. And I asked him what Knight was like. And he said, he's a demanding coach, but he cares about his players. And he got around to telling me about this quote that Knight has he says, it's a very simple quote, but if you think about it, it really puts it in perspective. He said, Knight has this quote that says, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he's really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything your physical body is going to do. I had a nurse recently, another nurse. All my stories are about nurses because that's kind of who I hang out with. But this nurse asked me, what was it like to have your foot amputated and to have your leg amputated? And I told her, I said, it hasn't been easy, especially the leg. I'm still learning how to walk again with a prosthetic. When you're six foot eight, falling is not an option. You get hurt when you fall from this height. But what I told her was, is that, Cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. That's who I am. That's who you are, Michelle. That's who everybody's listening to us is. So we spend all this time worrying about, oh, I'm going to get chemo, my hair's going to fall out, or my skin's going to get blotchy, or I'm going to sleep all the time, or stuff like that. Yeah, that may happen, but that's not who you are. You are your heart, your mind, and your soul. Spend time developing those, working on those. Because you can work on them even when you're sick. You can work on them even when you're in bed and you're tired and all that. But we get so worried about our physical appearance, we sort of neglect our mindset and our mind, our heart, and our soul. I think you're right. And that's a journey I'm kind of on right now is focusing on the mindset and trying to master it in a way like you have. Just because I think your mindset plays an extremely important role on your physicality. I think you can make yourself sicker or better to a degree just with your mindset. And so I think it's huge. I really do. I totally agree with you. I remember when I was in high school, I remember a coach who wanted to improve his players' free throw shooting percentage. And so he divided his team up. And after practice, he had half the team shoot an extra 50 free throws. And the other half of the team, he had sit on the bleachers, close their eyes, and see themselves shooting free throws. And at the end of the season, the players that had the better free throw shooting percentage were not the players that actually physically shot the shots after practice. They were the players that saw themselves shooting it in their minds because in their minds, they never missed. Right. You never saw yourself shooting and missing. You always make it. And so your mind is such a powerful tool and we don't use it enough. We don't let it help us. We just feel helpless because our body feels bad. Well, you can use your mind. You're absolutely right. You can use your mind 
make your body feel better. Right. And I've read and listened to people who say that the unconscious mind cannot distinguish the difference. So when you visualize something happening, your mind, your unconscious mind does not know that it hasn't happened. It believes that it's happened. Right. Yeah. Same part of your brain that lights up, for example, when you're shooting free throws is the same part of your brain that lights up when you're thinking about shooting free throws. Right. And I think the important part of what you just said is that the opposite of that is true. If you're one of those people that keep telling yourself, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, eventually you will hardwire your brain to the point where you're right, you can't do this. I've had people come up to me and say, Terry, I could never do what you did. I could never go through what you've gone through. And depending on what kind of mood I'm in, if I'm sort of in a smart aleck mood, I'll kind of look at him like, yeah, you're right, you couldn't. Because you've already decided in your mind that you couldn't do this. Why would you go into anything? Why would you start anything going into it with the mindset of, I can't do this or I'm going to fail? Why would you do that? You've already put yourself behind the eight ball and there's no way you're going to be successful. So yeah, I have doubts. I have fears, but I'm going to go into this like, well, you know what? This is probably not going to be a lot of fun, but what can I learn from it? How can I use this pain, this ugliness, this depression to make me stronger? Not how is it going to weaken me? How can I use it to make me stronger? Yeah. And along the same point, I've had people ask me with my limited experiences, but they'll say, how do you do that? I couldn't do that. And I'm like, you give yourself no choice. You have no choice, but to get through it. Because if you allow yourself, you're going to pick the path of least resistance, which is defeat in my mind. So I don't even allow that. It's like, I got no choice. This is the way I got to go. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But in a way, you do have a choice. You have a choice to quit. I'm just going to give up. Right. I'm not going to engage. And again, you're going to fail. Right. Absolutely going to fail. Why not at least try? And who knows? Maybe you'll be successful. Maybe you'll beat the disease. Maybe you'll start the business, whatever it ends up being. Pretty awesome. I know you've written a book. So would you want to tell us about your book? Sure. Yeah. So 2020, I wrote this book. People kept suggesting that I write the book. And again, I'll go back to God. And I was like, no, I'm not a writer. I don't want to write this book. There's sort of an old joke that says, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So I'm not going to tell you that God has ever spoken to me. God has never spoken to me. But I think what God does is he puts people in our path that start to make the same suggestions, that starts to make the same requests of us. And so a number of people kept starting to say, you should write a book, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I was really kind of poo-pooing it. I don't want to write a book. And again, I think that goes back to free will. God is like, hey, Terry, I want you to write a book. But hey, you can say no. You can go over here and do your own thing. But I think I'm smart enough when enough people start making a suggestion that I need to pay attention and maybe figure out this is God's way of saying, hey, dummy, I'm telling you to write a book. Work with me here. So 2020, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it was a book that was born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado, where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had had dinner one night. And I remember after dinner saying to her, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. She got real quiet for a while and she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. 
finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then the second conversation was with a young man in college who reached out to me on social media. And he asked me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if maybe I could go a little deeper with them. So I spent some time and I used to carry a pad of paper and a pencil around with me and was always taking notes. And eventually I had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And then I sent them to him. And then I stepped back. I was like, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the book came to be. That's awesome. Really? So you also have a business, right? Where you actually help motivate people. Am I correct? Yeah. So this was another thing where people had read the book or they heard me on podcasts or they'd seen me in person speaking. I started to get people that were like, we want to do a membership program around the book, around the principles in the book. I was like, no, I don't think I want to do that. I'm in treatment every three weeks. That's a lot of work. But again, enough people started to make the suggestion that I decided to do it. And I started it over the summer. So it's really kind of in its infancy. I'm still trying to tweak it and work it out and make sure it's the best that it can possibly be. But it's basically the Sustainable Excellence Membership. Obviously, I took a lot of time to figure out what I was going to call it. So it's SustainableExcellenceMembership.com. And what you get is, is on-demand personal development videos. You get monthly group coaching calls. And you also get, and I think this is really the most interesting thing that I found, because I always thought it would be the videos and that people would glean to. Not that they don't, but there's a community of basically like-minded leaders and professionals that allow people to sort of bounce ideas off each other. It's like, I'm thinking about this, or I went through this. How did you handle that? And so it's fun for me to go into the community and watch and listen to people talking to each other and stuff like that. So that has really, at least for me, from my expectations of what I thought was not going to be the big draw, but it appears to be the big draw. And the more I learn about memberships, the more I realize that for the most part, that is the draw where you get people together that are unsure or concerned, or they've got an idea, but they don't know how to go. And people just start bouncing things off each other and they come away with, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to go try that and that. So yeah, so the Sustainable Excellence membership is just started. And if you want more information about it, go to sustainableexcellencemembership.com. You can sign up to get a free 15 minute conversation with me to talk more about it, to see if it's something that would be beneficial to you or something that would work for you. Especially after COVID, I think people crave connection and then finding people who are like-minded is huge. It really is. It is. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because they're going to further your journey and you're going to learn from them and it accelerates your growth. Yeah, it does for me. I learned stuff just listening to people talking to each other. It's like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. That's a great benefit. It is. It's absolutely great. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up, is there anything I should have asked you about or brought up that I didn't, that you would want to talk about? If you don't mind, I'll close with one final story. Absolutely. That hopefully people can get something out of. I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. When I was young, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch 
Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And my favorite was always Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone debuted. You, you may have seen it. It's a huge blockbuster. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not a made-up character just for the movie. Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp had been, most of his adult life, some form of a lawman. So these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds somehow come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a sanitarium of tuberculosis in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this scene, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? Why nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Michelle, you and I probably know people that are out there listening to us that are like, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this arises, I'll have a significant life. What I'd like to leave your listeners with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. I think peace is a precious commodity. (laughs) It really is. Well, thank you so much. I truly am honored that you decided to join us and I admire your journey and everything that you're doing to try to help everybody else. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on. I always say it's good people like you that uh, allow me to come on and have a conversation with them. And hopefully the people that listen to us, we make a positive difference in their lives. If we do, today's been a good day. Oh, I agree. I sometimes joke that I should have named the podcast Just One because I feel like if we help just one person, then we've achieved something great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we wrap up today's episode, I hope Terry sharing about the power of mastering your mindset, among many other things, has helped you in some way. With Terry's story, one thing that stood out to me is when Terry talked about how much further down the road our true breaking point is versus where we think it is. You know, that point where you feel like you just can't handle one more thing. Terry also shared about how finding your purpose in life should be a major priority for all of us and then make sure you're living it. And he also told us to push ourselves to do uncomfortable things. The basis of that is far more than just expanding your comfort zone or growing or even personal development for that matter. From Terry's experience, doing these types of things will make us all more resilient when the big hits in life come. As always, I hope this episode helps at least one person. So with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.